Cairo, Seattle. And this is Your Last Meal, a show about famous people and the stories behind the foods they love most. Today on the program, award-winning ukulele player Jake Shimabukuro. Jake plays jazz, blues, funk, rock, bluegrass, classical folk, and flamenco, all on his teeny tiny ukulele. And on his new album, Jake and Friends, he duets with everyone from Willie Nelson and Jack Johnson to Michael McDonald and Bette Midler. I feel like Jake was probably that guy in high school that was friends with everybody. He was friends with the nerds and the stoners and the jocks. Jake grew up and still lives in Hawaii. So we're going to learn all about poi, which is Hawaii's most sacred dish, with the owner of the Waiahoa Poi Factory in Oahu. And I chat with Mark Healy, a Hawaiian pro surfer who has been spearfishing for his dinner since he was five years old. But first, my conversation with Jake Shimabukuro. I just want to talk about your early days. So talk about how... Oh, wait, that's not where I want to start. I remember where I want to start. I want to talk about pronunciation, first of all, because in Hawaii, there is a different way to pronounce the instrument that you play compared to kind of how the rest of the country pronounces it. So will you say the name (laughs) of your instrument and does it bug you how we say it? No, I mean, it it doesn't bug me. I mean, it's just the way I was taught, you know, like all of my teachers growing up in Hawaii, they said ukulele, which is, I guess it's made up of two native Hawaiian words, uku and lele. And it actually means jumping flea is the literal translation. And it got its name because I guess your finger looks like, they look like little jumping fleas on a fretboard. So, oh, that's um, so funny. Yeah. So that's kind of how it got. So ukulele. But, you know, I think uh, there was a period where people would shorten the name and it would just say uke like u-k-e and then when you extended the word again then it became ukulele right so i i think that's how it got the y sound but yeah but we we were i was always taught you know to say ukulele so it's always an interesting thing when you're talking about something from another culture because for example Uh my dad is israeli so growing up we had hummus and not hummus and so it's like Uh do i expect everyone else to say hummus or can they say hummus it's like should i be saying ukulele i mean it's hard to know you know what is respect and what is i'm gonna start i'm gonna start saying hummus from now on okay because i just learned that from you just now (laughs) Then I'm going to say ukulele, at least for the rest of this call. (laughs) Jake's mom introduced him to the ukulele. I know I'm already saying it like that again, when he was just four years old. And he loved it so much, he practiced for hours and hours every day. Yeah, so I just fell in love with it. And I don't know, and I haven't put it down since. You know, I never dreamed that I'd be touring and doing what I'm doing today and making records with it, but I love it. I mean, I, I absolutely loved it from day one. And 
One of the things that seems really cool about the ukulele, which I actually have one. I remember like 12 years ago or so, there was like a huge trend and I got in on it and I got one and I was playing it all the time. <laughs> and now sadly it's in the closet. And when I set up this interview, I was like, I got to learn her again because it is so easy, um, but it's so small and portable that it just seems like the ideal instrument to play because you can easily check it on an airplane. You can bring it to the beach. It seems like you can bring music with you everywhere. That's one of my favorite things about the instrument is you can take it with you everywhere. The accessibility is so important, right? Because you can hike up a mountain and throw it in a backpack and you can play up there. You can take it to the beach. You know, I'll be practicing in in an Uber. You can really make music anywhere, you know, especially for people who've never played an instrument before and they want to start. You know, I think the ukulele is a great instrument to, to start with. What would your last meal be? What would my last meal be? Oh, that's such a tough one. Anything with fish. I love fish. I grew up doing a lot of fishing as a kid and still do that today. And I don't know, maybe sushi then. How's that? I'll take it. Sushi would be my last meal. And what kind of fish? What is your favorite sushi? Oh, well, actually, you know, in Hawaii, we do have this one. My favorite fish to eat is a fish called kumu. K-U-M-U. And it's a red fish. It's a it's from the goat goatfish family. And it is absolutely, I mean, it is so, so delicious. Every once in a while, you'll be able to order it like in a, in a nice like Chinese restaurant or something, and uh, and they'll steam it for you. But it usually costs about $150, you know, for the plate. I mean, it's oh, wow. it's a it's a real delicacy. But uh yeah, it's one of my favorites. So it's very rare, but every once in a while, I will be lucky enough to catch one. We have a lot of protected areas now, right, so that they can repopulate. You will see them, like if you go to, you know, those protected areas and you go snorkeling or something, yeah, you'll see them all over the place. But I mean, you never see it in the market. You rarely see it in the in the fish markets and the stores and all of that. But every once in a while, I'll be fortunate enough to catch one. And, and when I do... You know, we usually invite the whole family over and we steam it and we have a nice family dinner. Yum. Do you do the steaming with ginger and green onions, that oh, kind yeah. of preparation? Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm. Yep. And then you pour the hot the hot oil over at the yes, end. Yes, yes. just, yeah. And then sometimes we even add a little bit of garlic as well. That gives it a nice flavor inside the cavity of the fish too. You want to stuff a lot of ginger. I believe that, you know, back in the day, this was a fish that only the royal family could eat. So it's definitely a, a real delicacy. The internet says kumu is Hawaii's only endemic shallow water goatfish. It occurs nowhere else in the world other than here in Hawaii, and it was once one of the most common fish on the reef. Wow. Okay. Hmm. I learned I learned a lot of new things today, actually. <laughs> At least I learned two. that. And hummus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So if you have that meal, the big steamed fish with the ginger and the scallion and the hot oil, what would you serve with it? Oh, I don't know. Our family, we usually just have a pot of nice steamed rice. For as 
his last meal, Jake wants sushi. Or a whole Hawaiian kumu fish steamed with garlic, ginger, and scallions, and finished with sizzling hot oil. Like he mentioned earlier, kumu are hard to come by. NOAA classifies them as an overfish species. But there is some good news. Earlier this year, Hawaii Pacific University got a big grant for a project dedicated to re-upping the population of kumu. And when we were poking around online researching kumu, we came across a couple of sustainable Hawaiian spearfishers who hunt for all their own fish, including kumu. And these people seemed so freaking cool that I had to get at least one of them on the show. My name is Mark Healy. I'm a professional big wave surfer and a stuntman, I guess, would be the main things. Mark makes most of his living as a big wave surfer and a Hollywood stuntman. I just doubled Michael Fassbender and doubled Scott Eastwood. I did a lot of stuff on Hawaii Five-O. I'm oftentimes the villain who shows up and dies first episode. <laughs> But one of his longtime passions and the way that he stocks his family fridge is by spearfishing in his hometown of Oahu and in some of the most beautiful places in the world. Pretty much going out with my dad and his friends since I was probably like maybe three years old. Yeah, we were just pretty much broke. And my dad liked doing things in the ocean and outdoors. So, you know, it's a win-win. You get good, healthy food that you don't have to pay for <laughs> and you get to have a good time. That was my introduction into spearfishing which is all free dive spearfishing. I guess you got to be specific about that. When you're free dive spearfishing, you're holding your breath. So you're not using scuba or anything like that. And how long can you stay underwater? How long can you hold your breath? Um, the longest I've held my breath just messing around was 6'10". Six minutes and 10 seconds? Yeah. Wow. 6'10 is a sprint. When you're spearfishing, it's a marathon. So you, you don't want to do too many super long dives because that just means you have to recover on the surface for longer until your next dive. You know, you want to do like 30 dives within a minute, half and two and a half minutes instead of just going for super big long ones. It seems like it's hard to hunt for fish because they're so zippy and fast and you can only be down there so long because of your breathing. So how hard is it to spear fish? Is this something that takes a lot of practice? Yeah, it's very, <laughs> it's very difficult because you have to learn how to hold your breath and deal with the pressure and learn how to equalize your ears to be able to go down. And then you have the whole world of learning fish behavior because really common misconception is that people are like going down and chasing around fish and spearing them. It's like they can stay underwater a lot longer than you and swim a lot faster. So the only time you're actually spearing fish is you're learning that fish's behavior and you're tricking them to come to you. That's the only way it works. Sometimes you surprise them like Kumu, you can surprise because they will go into to holes and you're, you're like, okay, I bet it's going to exit out of that hole. So I'm going to be waiting down there. But in general, you're getting the fish to come to you. How do you do that? Is it like singing a song for a snake to come up? Kind of. Really? Kind of. Yeah, we do uh, a lot of times um, with predatory fish and for Kumu, this works. If I'm on the bottom and I see them, I'm not going to dive straight down on them. Usually I'm going to create some space away so I don't make them uncomfortable and I'll get down there and grab a rock on the bottom or a dead piece of coral and I'll start scratching and making noise and I'll puff up sand on the bottom. So what I'm mimicking is like an eagle ray or even a shark or a big fish, right? Because what happens is when a big fish is eating something, other fish come around to see what that fish is going to scare that's going to run out the side. It's kind of like um, cattle birds big white birds, at least once in Hawaii, sit on the cattle's back. 
it's because when the cattle are moving through a field, they're making all the grasshoppers and bugs jump out of the way. And that's when the birds see them, they go down and get them. So these fish are acting the same way. So you make a little bit of a ruckus down there. They're like, oh, that big thing's doing all the hard work for me. I want to come and grab something that is trying to escape out the side. And then you get them. Yeah. That's so I theory. actually always wondered why the birds were on the backs of these animals. So thank you for that. Yeah. So they, they're just having somebody else do the hard work for them. They're, they're being smart. On average, Mark will dive between 45 and 100 feet below the surface to try and trick and catch a fish. When we're shooting like deep sea type fish like wahoo or mahi-mahi, I'm usually using a flasher that I throw and sinks through the water, kind of like a falling leaf. And they see that flash and they want to come to it. And that's when I um, take my shot is when they're coming into that. And, And there's so many more ways of doing this. It's all based on knowing fish behavior and knowing their different personalities. How did you learn the different fish behavior? Tens of thousands of hours (laughs) of observation and trial and error. Somebody didn't take you under their wing and and taught you all this. You really learned by observation. Yeah. I mean, my dad was taking me out when I was a little kid, but once I got into it and got old enough to kind of go out on my own, I mostly, I spent most of my time diving alone for, you know, most of my learning years. You said that you started going out with your dad when you were three. Were you wearing a life jacket or were you swimming already at that age? And were you actually diving? No, I was just wearing a life jacket and using one of those like giant round Jacques Cousteau masks. Okay. Like the, the mask was so big on me. It was below my upper lip. <laughs> it was just so uncomfortable. And uh, I had a life jacket on and I just hold on to the buoy where all the fish that my dad speared were strung up on and he dragged me around. That was daddy daycare. And, and then I ended up loving it. <laughs> yeah. And I read that you started actually spearfishing when you were five. Is that true? Yeah, I would say that's about the time I got my first three prong, but that was like super rudimentary. That that was me like antagonizing moray eels everywhere. Did you actually catch them though? Yeah, we'd end up using them for bait, but (laughs) there's a lot of poor like aquarium type creatures that died in my early years of spearfishing. I still still feel bad about it. (laughs) Yeah, you weren't quite a conservationist back then. (laughs) You're like, it moved, shoot it, hurry. Like the Dennis, Dennis, I can't even speak, Dennis Menace of the Sea. That was literally my nickname. Really? My own parents called me that. Dennis Because I look like him too. (laughs) (laughs) I think the best way my dad taught me is any fish I shot, he was like, you got to clean it and eat it now. Like he forced me to eat everything. So I learned really quickly there's certain fish that I don't ever want to eat again. (laughs) As you can imagine, Mark eats a lot of fish and he trades some of it for locally grown veggies and other locally sourced foods. So many people go to Hawaii on vacation and they eat a lot of fish. You know, if people wanted to be more conscious, is there a fish that you should not eat when you go out and you see it on a menu because it probably shouldn't be there? Well, I'll tell you, if you come on vacation to Hawaii and you eat fish on a menu, it's going to be yellowfin tuna or it's going to be mahi-mahi, maybe marlin. And nine out of 10 times, that's going to be from a long line fleet. Uh, you got like a 50% chance that tuna is actually from the Philippines and has been frozen for like three months. Most of the fish that's on the menu is not local caught here. Okay. So all the tuna um, poke probably is not local. Most of it, unless it's during summertime and you're getting it from like a small place. Um, because summertime is when our yellowfin tuna are running here. It's kind of difficult to figure out is because, you know, there is sustainable longline fishing that is done through like the local fleet here. But then there's just the 
rape and pillage pirate ships that are doing like the lion's share of the damage in our oceans. And that's where like chain of custody of fish and knowing where your fish is coming from is there's not that transparency. I know people are trying to change that, but like I much rather buy something caught by a local fisherman in season than just a mystery long line pirate ship, (laughs) Filipino fleet. So I, I guess being more aware of what fish are seasonal, what's being caught right now and eating that. Any fish with a tiny eye patch is a bad fish, a pirate fish. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Time for a quick break. But when we come back, we'll dive into the history of Hawaii's most sacred food. And I got to say, I am very pleased that we're doing a Hawaii episode. It was not intentional to do a Hawaii episode in the middle of winter, but I hope your ears are enjoying their Hawaiian vacation. You, of course, grew up in Hawaii, which has its own cuisine. What are some of your favorite foods from Hawaii? Oh, my goodness. Well, so there's this dessert called kulolo. It's spelled K-U-L-O-L-O. And it's a it's a Hawaiian dessert. It's made out of taro. It's made of taro and I think like some coconut milk and some other things. But, oh, it's like one of my favorites. Kulolo is something I always crave you know when i'm when i'm traveling and away from home for a long time something else i really love is poi of course we also made from taro and you pretty much eat it with everything you know it's just kind of a staple and the consistency is very it's it's almost like a pudding it's made from from taro so it's a starch and very very good can you describe what what it tastes like because i feel like poi is one of those things kind of like marmite or vegemite that people who are from the place love it and then people who visit it's an acquired taste yeah i think so you know it depends on how fresh it is because you know when it's when it's really fresh it's it's easy it's like eating sweet potato you know when it's when it's really fresh but then sometimes um People like to let it ferment a little bit, so it, it so there is a little bit of sourness to it. For me personally, I, I like it better when it's fresh, and it depends on what you're eating it with too. You know, like normally you eat it with something very salty, and and it kind of uh, helps to balance out whatever it is that you're eating. People known today as Hawaiians came to the islands by boat about 6,000 years ago, and they brought taro plants with them from Asia. Most Hawaiian poi is made from taro, so both the root vegetable and the dish have huge cultural significance, even if people don't eat it every day like their ancestors did. But before we get to that, for those who don't know, what is poi? Poi is basically a starch plus water that is pounded up into kind of a paste. That's Liko Ho, owner of Waiahole Poi Factory on Oahu. Poi itself actually can be made from any of the traditional starches, taro, which we call kalo, uh, the sweet potato we call uala, breadfruit, which is ulu, yams, even bananas, green bananas. Basically, all of them can be pounded into poi. And uh, the goal when you're, when you're making poi is, is to try to get it as smooth as possible. In Hawaii, the most common poi is made from cooked and peeled taro that's been pounded down with water until it's smooth, gooey, sticky, but pourable. 
I had always thought that it was a condiment, but on your website, looking at your menu, you offer rice or poi. So is it more of a side dish? It's actually a central dish. So one thing that I like to share with people usually is that, you know, for taro, sweet potato, breadfruit, yams, uh, and, and bananas, those are all part of a, a traditional category that we, we would call ai. The word ai is actually the same word that we use to eat in general or even food in general. So basically what it's saying is that the starch food, taro and the poi was one of the main starch foods, is actually the definition of eating. So it's actually the central part of the meal. And then everything else is um, adding on to that. Oh, that's cool. Today in, in Hawaii, it would be comparable to how Hawaiian or local people feel about rice. If you don't have rice at a meal in Hawaii, it's not really eating. <laughs> so do you eat poi every day and do you eat it with every meal? You know, I, I don't. And, and I grew up mostly eating rice, you know, and that's part of our history that to me is, is actually unfortunate. You know, we, we kind of have gotten away from our, our traditional foods, you know, especially poi. The, the positive part is that it's actually making a comeback. Liko is a part of the Hawaiian poi revival. He owns the Waiahole Poi Factory, which cranked out poi from 1905 to 1970. In 1970, Liko's parents had just returned to Hawaii after doing a stint in the Peace Corps. They bought the factory building and used it as an art gallery and a nonprofit to help local farmers. But in 2009, Liko got involved, and the poi factory started making and selling poi again. And they opened a restaurant serving traditional Hawaiian foods like lao lao, chicken long rice, and kalua pig. I read that when the poi is uncovered at the table, all the conflict between people must stop. Is that a story you're familiar with? Yeah, that, that's a pretty standard. You know, it kind of goes a little bit, even a little further than that. Um, whenever you have the poi and it's open, it's traditionally said that you wouldn't even talk about business or, or things that you're planning the basic thought, I think, is that, you know, whenever you have that main food on the table, the focus is the food. You have that respect for the food. You're not thinking about something else or what are you going to do tomorrow or you give the food, the, you know, the respect. In our traditional genealogy, the taro plant is actually the elder sibling of the human being. And we actually share the same name. The first taro plant came from that first child. Uh, and was named Haloa. The next child was the human being and actually took on the same name. So there's a, there's a really close connection between the taro and the Hawaiian people. At Waiahole Poi Factory, they proudly hand pound much of the poi they sell, only using taro from the Hawaiian islands. They use a completely traditional method, just a stone and a long wooden board, and they pound out the taro with water until they get a texture like pudding. Your goal in pounding poi is to get it um, nice and smooth and to take out all of the what we call pu'upu. And pu'upu is like a, a little lumps. Like Jake said earlier, fresh poi tastes like the taro itself. A little bit sweet and a little bit potato-y. Uh, the traditional way of eating it is to let it sour at least one or two days. Um, and that's how I prefer to eat poi. Once it sours, it starts to get like a tanginess. It's pretty close to what happens with, like, um, sourdough. 
All right, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, Jake will tell us a secret to making the best fried rice ever. I watched the episode of Cooking Hawaiian Style where you were a guest and you made a few dishes with oh, the host. Oh, you saw that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And one of the things I noticed, I was like, oh, he loves truffle because you did truffle oh. oil on a couple things. Like when you made a steak, you used it. When you made a salad dressing. And even this is what surprised me when you made a an egg sandwich for breakfast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love truffle. So when I, I remember when I when I did that cooking show at, at that time, I was really into uh, truffle salts and different truffle powders and things yeah. like that. So that's why I think I used it on on everything. Probably overused it, but no, it is it's so good. <laughs> I love um, it too. But yeah, it's so much fun doing that cooking show because you know I don't get to do those a lot because I mean I cook at home, but I'm not I'm not a cook. Or, a chef or anything like that but I do enjoy cooking I love creating you know my own my own recipes you know one of the things I I love doing is I love making fried rice yeah and one of my secret ingredients for fried rice is you know like the the instant ramen packets yeah that that you that you get and you just boil water right but the packet in there that has the dashi or the flavoring you know you just sprinkle some of that over your fried rice when you're cooking it oh it's so good perfect amount of flavor (laughs) yeah because then you get like the good msg and the good saltiness oh my god that's a good idea so wait can you walk me through beginning to end how do you make your fried rice what do you put in it and when do you put the powder do you sprinkle it on top or like mix it in Oh, no, no. You mix it in. Yeah. Okay. And you, I don't know. For me, like whenever I make fried rice, it's just whatever leftovers you have in the fridge. Right. Yeah. So even if you have like some, chi- you know, I mean, even if you have chicken or whatever, whatever proteins you have in the fridge or sometimes, you know, just cracking a couple of eggs and and throwing it in there. I think that's really good. Um, once in a while, I like to add um, oyster sauce. You know, if, mm-hmm. if, if no one's allergic to shellfish or anything, oyster sauce adds a nice flavor as well. Um, but yeah, but the but the secret ingredient, I'm telling you, it's the those little packets and those ramen packages. You know, you just sprinkle some of that as you're as you're mixing in all your your vegetables. Sometimes I think like because you know how sometimes you'll cook your onions and all of that first, right? So you, yeah. you stir fry the onions, get that a little translucent. And then you could even sprinkle it into the onions already when you're doing that. So the flavor is already in there. And then you start adding your other things. And then, then right, then you add your rice and all that. Mix it all up and get it all going. But but the secret is you need a big pan, right? Mm. <laughs> a good frying pan to, to mix it all up. Otherwise, you're going to make a huge mess. And then also the other trick too is make sure you cook it on high heat. You make it super hot and you do it fast. Okay, so here's my follow-up question. What okay. do you do with the ramen? So you use the packet <laughs> up. Then what do you do with the noodles later? Are they just sitting sad in the pantry like, no one's going to eat me. I don't have any powder with me anymore. Unfortunately, yeah, they kind of do. But you know what we do is we always save our noodles because you just boil them, right? And then you have noodles and you can add whatever you want to them. I mean, even throw it in our miso soup, you know, in the morning oh, yeah. for breakfast or something or uh, or any kind of even like leftover pho if you still have some soup and you can just always add noodles to that. So 
we always have use for for the noodles. It doesn't have to be with those ramen packs, right? So set them yeah, free. So I, I, I don't. So definitely don't throw away the noodles, you know, because you can always you can always make use of them. Yeah, I did. You happen to notice a couple months ago there was this ice cream shop in New York. They came out with a Kraft mac and cheese flavor ice cream. Did you see that? No, I, I didn't see that, but that. That sounds interesting. Yeah. And so I tried to order it because you could order it by mail and it sold out in literally a second. Like I had friends, we were all trying to get it. We're click, 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 and it's gone. So we decided to make our own. And so I used up the cheese packets, but I didn't use the noodles. And so I feel like I'm in the situation that you're in with your ramen where I was like, what do I do with these? And I had to remind myself, they're just noodles. It's macaroni. Like you can make anything with them. And so they're sitting in the cupboard, though, still in a little Tupperware instead of their Kraft mac and cheese box, just waiting to do something great. (laughs) They've been separated from their best friend, the cheese powder. (laughs) Um, One more question, a story that you actually told on Cooking Hawaiian Style that I thought was really funny. Can you tell the story of uh, when Ziggy Marley asked you to play a song together? And then when you kind of found out what the song was about, you were like, oh, Okay. Oh, <laughs> oh gosh. Okay. Well, let's see. So, gosh, I don't. I can't remember how many years ago this was. Maybe six or seven years ago, when Ziggy Marley was working on his "Love Is My Religion" record, he had contacted me and wanted me to to play on one of the tracks. So I I was really excited. I was like, oh man, yeah, that'd be awesome. So he flew me out to LA, played the track for me. He didn't lay down his vocals yet. It was just the the backing track. He he said, oh yeah, if you can just play some rhythm over this part, I want you to play a, a solo. So I was like, okay, all right, sounds good. And then uh, he came in and listened to it and he was like, oh yeah, sound, sounds great. So he gave me the thumbs up. So I was like, okay, cool. And he said, yeah, I'll, I'll send you the track when it's done. So I said, okay, great. And then like a month later, he sent me, he sent me the track <laughs> and uh, the, the song, it's, it's about smoking uh, marijuana you know, while you're sitting on a beach in, in Hawaii. So, so, and also I should, I should backpedal a little bit. So I, I work with a lot of kids and a lot of programs that promote being drug free. And, you know, so I used to do a lot with the D.A.R.E. program, you know, and I've always been drug free my whole life. And I, I always talk about that, you know, at shows. So when that song came out, yeah. You're like, oops. Um, a lot, a lot of my, <laughs> a lot of my friends were like, like, whoa, Jake. <laughs> I was like, I didn't know. I didn't know what the song was about. But, you know, we actually collaborated on this new record that I just did, you know. So, and I remember talking with him. I said, oh, what song do you want to do? And uh, and he said, oh, let's do it. Let's do a Beatles song. And then he wanted to do All You Need Is Love. And so that's what we ended up doing. And, and his version is just unbelievable. And that was Jake Shimabukuro's Last Meal. Do you want sushi or your kumu fish to be your last meal officially? Oh, yeah, we can call it the kumu episode. Okay, cool. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I like that better because we've had a couple sushis, but you're the first kumu. Yeah. <laughs> Make sure and pick up his new album, Jake and Friends. Thanks to Liko Ho, owner of Waiahole Poi Factory on Oahu. We're kind of on the opposite side from Honolulu and Waikiki. For our island, the area that we're in is pretty rural. You know, there's there's a lot of challenge to keeping it that way. We're still trying our best to meet those challenges. 
You can find a link to the factory and restaurant in the show notes. And if you have a trip to Hawaii coming up and you're going to Oahu, go visit the factory and let me know how the poi is. Let me live vicariously through you. Thanks to Mark Healy. If you're interested in learning how to free dive spearfish, find a link to Mark in the show notes. And this is the last episode of the year. We started January 2021 with Ben and Jerry, which is one of my favorite episodes. It revolves around the fact that Ben can't smell and can hardly taste anything. Most food that I eat, it's mostly about the texture, the smooth, creamy ice cream with the big, crunchy chunks. You know, Jerry would make the ice cream and he'd say, hey, how do you like it? I'd say, well, it's great, but I don't know what flavor it is. (laughs) And we're going to end the year with Jake Shimabukuro. Starting with ice cream, ending with Hawaii, I'm pretty happy about that. Whether you only listen to this episode or you've been listening all year, thanks so much for listening. We'll be back in January with more episodes so that I can do the thing that I love most. Talk about food. And speaking of food, I post about it on Instagram. You can follow along at HelloRachelBell, B-E-L-L-E. I am planning to document the last thing I eat in 2021 and then the first thing that I eat in 2022. So keep an eye on my Instagram stories. I'm going to be asking you what your last and first meals were. Happy New Year. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. 